Hello, and welcome to St. John's University podcast of author Richard Viteri, reading from his book, The Third Miracle. This reading was co-sponsored by the Library Programming Workgroup and the University Honors Program. The moderator is Professor Arthur Sherman of the University Libraries. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the program. This is the first uh, library program that we're co-sponsoring with the Honors Program this year. Tonight, we have Richard Viteri, who is a graduate of St. John's University, was a professor here. He taught screenplay writing between 84 and 87. He's a screenplay writer. He's a, a, a novelist. Uh, he's a poet, he's told me. He also writes poetry. His novel, The Third Miracle, which will be available after the talk for purchase and signing, was turned into a major motion picture starring Ed Harris and Ann Hesht. Came out, I think, in what, 99, Richard? Yeah. Came out in 99. Um, the interesting, th one of the interesting things about this novel is that scenes from this novel take place on the St. John's campus. It's, it's about uh, the investigation of a candidate for sainthood, and uh, some of the scenes take place in the, there's uh, characters in the book that teach theology here at St. John's. So uh, it's all of these reasons, uh, all these connections bring Richard back here today. And um, he's going to read from the book, talk about the book, and talk about his life as a professional writer since graduating from St. John's in 1973. So uh, I give you Richard Battieri. Um, yes, the actually the novel does take place uh, in Queens and St. John's. And um, this is kind of fun to be here because I actually got the inspiration, I was telling uh, the gentleman who read the book in the library, from the St. John's Library for the novel in 1984. While you were teaching here? Yeah, I guess, yeah, I was teaching here, yes. And I had my alumni library card. <laughs> so um, I was really interested in the idea of um, miracles. And uh, most of you weren't born in 85, right? Yeah, I was a fetus at that time. Okay. Well, the word miracle was not used very often, and um, being Catholic, obviously. Um, I didn't even know that there was a process that um, has to do with sainthood when somebody becomes a saint. Does anybody ever hear, any, ever hear about the ordinary process of canonization? Does anybody know how a person becomes a saint, a Catholic church? There was um, a reporter from Newsweek that wrote a book on um, Oh, making Saints, that, that explained the whole part. I can't think of his name right now, but... Uh, so you know. Yeah, I heard him speak once. Okay. Yeah. Well, when I investigated, when I went to the library, I found this little black book called The Ordinary Process of Canonization. And in the first sentence or second paragraph of the book, really very early on in this little black book that I got out of the library, it said that when someone, a candidate, may be a saint or not, a the Vatican would assign a a priest called a postulator to investigate to see if this person was a saint. And then there were criteria to find out if they were a saint. They had to be dead at that time in 85 to 10 years. There had to be miracles attributed to this person. And this person had to be had to have lived with heroic virtue. And then it said that the priest, the postulator, would act as a spiritual detective to find out if this person is a saint. So I suddenly saw a thriller. Spiritual detective. So um, the lead of, of the, uh, the the character of the third miracle is the postulator, the priest who Ed Harris plays in the movie, and it's his assignment 
to find out if this woman in Queens, where miracles have been attributed to her life, is a saint or not. So if I wrote a novel where this priest was a man of tremendous faith, that would be one story. But I was really interested in Father Frank Moore, who was losing his faith when he's assigned this duty to find out if this woman is a saint or not. So the book really works on two levels. It's Ed Harris plays a priest, Father Moore, who is questioning his faith, while at the same time he's investigating to see if this woman is a saint. Now, there needed then to be, as the third miracle, there needed to be three miracles. Well, Pope, Pope John Paul changed that to two. So third miracle no longer applies. Uh, you got to go around the other way. And, um, uh, but there's a terrific process because the, the priest must first gather evidence. And usually it takes 150 years to decide yes or no if a person is the same. Um, that's the that's the the normal length of time. So my book, I speed this up a bit, obviously, but the postulator could die in the process. But what's interesting was when Frank returns to his home in Queens to investigate to see if this woman is a saint or not. There's a statue in the church of Saint Stanislaus that cries tears of blood in October when it rains, and people have been going for years to pray because that parish is Helen Stevenson's parish. So that is why, after a petition of 100,000 names, the archbishop or the cardinal, I can't remember now, assigns Frank and tells Frank, take care of this. You know, find out if she's a saint or not, because if she's not a saint, the danger becomes there could be a cult following of this person. And that's against the church. So what he's got to do, Frank, is to find out if this woman really lived with heroic virtue. So he needs to investigate everything about Helen Stevenson. He has to check out any miracles, and he has to check out if this woman really lived like a saint. But his job is to actually find out the opposite. The church has a saying that you are uh, guilty until proven saintly. So the process is to find the guilt first. So in the process, Frank starts to investigate and meets her daughter, played in a movie by Anne Hesch, and he falls in love with her, which is obviously not a good idea if you're a priest. So the conflict is he doesn't know if this is the word of God, because the postulator has to decide, and that's the big decision, is he pushing the investigation because it's his will or God's will? And when, in, when he falls in love with Anne Hesch in the movie, he starts to wonder if he should never have been a priest in the first place. So there's a conflict with Frank, Frank Moore, throughout the story. And he also finds out that the pastor was rather obsessed with this woman, Helen. And he realizes that the pastor may have been in love with her, too. Um, though he has to prove if anything ever happened between them. So he has to investigate the rectory. And she actually moved into the convent, which was really um, something that should have been done at one point. But she had done all these good things for the community. She had taken care of the kids. She started a drug clinic. Um, and the whole thing is like, there's only been three American saints. Anybody name them? Mother Seton, uh, Catherine Drexel. She's not a saint. Yet. No. Uh, Susan. 
Does he count? No. Only three official American saints. You had Mother Seton, right? Mother so, Seton. Uh, another, uh, another woman? Uh, this is bad wearing a Catholic conference. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a German name. I can't remember it. Uh, I'll give you a hint. One was a bishop, <laughs> and the other one was also a nun. Neumann? And Mother Cabrini. Mother Cabrini. Oh, Mother Cabrini. Yeah. Now, if you look, you'll see that the two women saints were nuns, and both started at least six orders, different orders. Um, and the third is a bishop. So an ordinary citizen to become a saint is really nearly impossible so far, anyway. Um, I mean, as you notice, Mother Teresa is being considered now, and, and the Pope is being considered. So... Frank's job looks like it's going to be pretty easy, but the last thing he wants to do is go to this parish and tell these people that this, these tears of blood coming from the statue have nothing to do with God or Helen Stevenson. Now, he has done this before, so he has a reputation called, the, he's the miracle killer, because he's gone into other communities where people are supposedly cured that have something to do with this person, and he has said no. There's no proof, because you need proof. And for a miracle to be a proven canonical miracle, it needs three qualities. It needs to be, someone needs to be praying to the person, and that those prayers have to be because the person is dying of a terminal disease, and the doctors say there's no hope. Secondly, when a miracle occurs, it has to be spontaneous. And thirdly, when the miracle occurs, um, the, um, the miracle has to be inexplicable and unexplainable. So you say, well, how could this actually happen? Well, one of the inspirations for my novel was an article in the New York Times in 1986 or 5 about um, uh, Cardinal Cook. Anybody remember Cardinal Cook? Okay. There have been miracles attributed to Cardinal Cook after his death. And there is a postulator now probably still investigating for the last 20 years. Different postulators. So... The when it comes to miracles and sainthood, the church is not that easy to hand them out, though I know the last pope, I think he beatified more people and canonized more people than anybody before. But the process is really arduous. It's very difficult. Because Frank's job is not only to gather all this information, and he could die by the end of it, but let's say he lives through gathering it. He then has to interview all these people. He has to determine that the woman in the book, is, her name is Helen Stevenson, actually is a saint, and then he has to go to a tribunal in Rome where he confronts cardinals, and it's like a jury. It's a trial. And the prosecutor used to be called, you've heard these terms before, devil's advocate. Well, then that was changed about 20 years ago to um, defender of the faith, and now the last pope has eliminated that, that position altogether. But in, in my novel, it was still there. So Frank has to get up in a court call witnesses, and he has to say that I believe Helen Stevens is a saint, and why? And then the prosecutor, the devil's advocate, comes out and says, no, she's not a saint, and you shouldn't be here, because the postulator's faith is questioned just as much as the said candidate for sainthood. So this postulator knows that Frank has disappeared several times from his duties because of his fear that he actually doesn't have faith. And he's doing this stuff, destroying these supposed miracles, even though it's his job. So 
in the process, Frank also falls in love with Anne Hess, which is a no, 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 nothing happens. And she is called as a witness because she, when Frank discovers, is very resentful of her mother because she says to him, how do you think I feel? They want to make my mother a saint. And what happened is the mother actually abandoned her when she's 18 to dedicate her life to the church. So Anne Hess's character, who drinks a little too much, is a little too wild, is very resentful of her mother. So when Frank interviews her, the last thing she wants is to make her mother a saint. And she's never been to the statue that cries the tears of blood. So the first thing Frank does, and what the church didn't want to do, the archdiocese, is to investigate to see what the blood is. And when he finds out that it's the same, it's AB positive, the same as Helen Stevenson's, he starts to believe that there's something, there's something valid to this miracle. Now, another thing that St. Augustine had written is that St. Augustine, in the very beginning of his life, um, as a theologian, I should say, in the very beginning of his life, uh, his life as a theologian, believed that miracles were dangerous because Satan could create a miracle just as God could. So he was against the whole idea of miracles and eventually changed his mind. So what Frank is afraid of is that there's this hysteria that will happen because people are actually touching the blood when it rains of being cured. So he has to investigate all the people that are cured. Now, in my investigation, I investigated all the stories that came out of morgues of how many miracles there have been. Anybody want to guess how many valid miracles by, like, 1985? 30? Less. Yeah. Not even 20. Wow. But the interesting thing was these people were dying of terminal diseases, went to Lourdes, and were cured. So, and, and there's actually, uh, the Catholic Church has a Protestant uh, minister there, not a Catholic. Who's a doctor? I'm sorry, Protestant doctor who does the medical examinations. And it was a really interesting case in, in that there was a young boy who lacked a pupil, and when he was dumped in the water, he could see. There was no medical reason that he could see, but the church did not did not um, uh, validate it as a catechal miracle because the young boy was way too young to understand that he was praying for a miracle. It was his mother, but it was a miracle, you know. So there's only been a hand, there's not a lot of miracles at Lourdes, but there are miracles going on. And actually, the novel is all about what is a miracle. And it's about Frank dealing with his own faith and how people deal with their own faith in their own ways. And the process of canonization is really a larger canvas, but it's not as important as how people individually believe. I don't know if I should read from the book, or would you like to ask questions first about the story? I know no one's read the novel, so yes. No, I <laughs> Yes. Yeah, why don't you, I mean, if you have a particular part that you think is uh, especially relevant. Okay, I'm trying to, I, I have a couple of places. Um, it's really strange because the move, uh, I wrote the movie with another writer, and Francis Coppola made the movie. So I see the scenes in my head, and then when I, you know, I've seen the movie a bunch of times, obviously. And then I, when I read the novel, I go, ah, but there's a new interesting thing going on. It's being turned into a Broadway musical. <laughs> yeah. And you think musical, la, 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 musical, right? But two young guys, uh, I think they're both Catholic, yeah, came up to me when they saw another musical of mine and said, we love the third miracle. Are the rights available to turn it into a Broadway musical? And I said, God, it's a fascinating idea because as an author, 
you know, the book continues to have other lives, you know, um, movie, novel, stage play. And actually, which is kind of cool, I always do this, it's published in several countries. This is the Polish version. It's Book of the Month Club in Poland, which I'm very proud of. And they use the, uh, the movie. Um, as of next week, it's going to be a Book of the Month in Spain. Wow. Yeah. It's Book of the November 1st. It becomes Book of the Month Club uh, in uh, comes out of uh, Barcelona. Hmm? Milagro is Spanish for Miracle? Uh, yeah, I guess Catholic countries really help. So I'm not sure if Greece is a Catholic country, but it's also uh, Book of the Month Club in Greece. Wow. Oh, I, yeah, I was surprised because they were the first country to buy the. Uh, of course, I can't read any of them. But, um, <laughs> but it's kind of exciting. These, there's some other languages too, but I, I don't have those copies of Um So it's kind of fun to see. So now I'm working on the play for the musical, and it's interesting because it's not that easy to take bits and stories, you know, parts and what characters do you keep, what characters do you change. Uh, Frank won't change, but uh, we've actually um, went into the studio and we have three, six songs, and they're fabulous. I mean, I love it. So these two young kids, who it's great, I mean, they're your age. Uh, well, they're 22 and 23, 23, both are 23. So I said, this is great that, you know, this is still alive, and they one day... <laughs> A hit musical, and they just won an award actually for the first six songs by the dramatist guy. So they're turning musicals, they're making musicals out of un unlikely things. These I heard on the radio this morning that Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, that movie with uh, Michael Caine and Steve yeah. Martin, is being turned into a, a musical. Well, you're a little late. It won, a, yeah. it won an award last year. Wow. I think it won the Tony, didn't it? But do you know it was a movie originally with Marlon Brando and David Niven? That's actually a funny. That's the movie was originally that. Really. Mm -hmm. But what you have to do when you do that, you have to get the rights. See, I, I in my contract, I could never do a musical until after seven years of the movie was made. Five, five years after the movie's made, and then I had to get permission. But I'm basing it not on the movie, the musical. The movie, the musical is based on my novel, and that you own. When you write a novel, you own the copyright. When you sell the movie, you lose the, the copyright. But we can. I, Ask you that later. Um, well, there are a couple of scenes that I kind of like, and I'll, I'll read real short scenes. But um, if I can find a real. Oh yeah, this is the, the first time. Um, I, don't, I don't know. The hard thing about writing a novel like mine is I have a lot of characters, so there's a lot of different voices. But there was one. There's one miracle that Frank is told that is actually seems to be valid. And when Helen Stevenson was alive, there was a young girl named Maria Katowski who was dying of lupus. And her mother was an alcoholic. And Maria would go to school. So the day, the first day that the statute cried tears of blood, Maria had been visiting Helen. Just Helen Stevenson worked with the, uh, the nuns. And she was always kind to Maria. So when the statue cried tears of blood, Maria was the first one who saw it. She was late for school. And as she runs by the statue, she's about, I don't know, 10 years old, the blood falls on her hands, and she walks into a mass that's the memorial mass for Helen. So it was October and rainy. And when she walks in, I don't know, when you see the movie, it's a beautiful scene. And in the book, she's glowing. 
The next day she goes to the doctors and there's no sign of lupus whatsoever. She's totally cured. So this is the first evidence, the first clue that this may be a miracle. Now she's 18 and she's a drug addict. She's a heroin addict. And she has not returned to the school. Her mother has disowned her. So Frank needs to talk to her because she's a living witness to a possible miracle, her own. He's talked to her doctor who said, I couldn't explain it. The girl had a terrible case of lupus. I was ready to put her in the hospital. You know, her white blood cells, I can't remember, I think were really high. And when she came to the hospital the next day after this blood fell on her, there was no sign of anything. And she was cured. So Frank has tried to find her and he goes to the park. She isn't there. And then one day he's walking in the schoolyard doing his investigation, talking to people, and he sees this young girl show up. And it's Maria Patowski. The next morning Frank had breakfast alone in the kitchen, then went back to his room about to work on a speech for the ceremony at the plaza when he happened to glance out the window. A young woman caught his eye. She was standing alone staring at the statue. Frank knew who she was instantly. He had no idea why he knew it, but he did. She was looking at the convent, the window, and then the statue. She ignored everyone else and stood alone, nearly trembling. It was clear she was reliving an intimate personal experience. Frank ran down the stairs and out into the schoolyard. He walked up behind the girl. Maria, he said. The girl looked over to him. She wore sneakers and jeans as well as a blue jean jacket. He could hardly see her face with the wind blowing her hair across. With one hand, she moved it away, and as soon as she did, he could see there was acne scars on her left cheek and that her eyes were glazed. I'm reading from page 87 in case. Thank you. I'm sorry. I saw him. Um, Huh, she said. All her motions were slow and awkward. Maria Katowski, Frank said, stepping over to her. Maria looked at Frank's white collar before looking at his face. Frank tried to put a comforting look in his eyes. My name is Father Frank Moore, he said. Are you the priest that's looking for me? Yes, I am, she said. He said softly. Maria looked relieved. I came here to tell you that you shouldn't be asking for me. Somebody told the people I hang out with. They said they heard you were going to take me away. They told me that they'd kill you. Hold on. I'm not asking. I'm not taking you anywhere. And who's going to kill me, he said. My boyfriend. He loves me. I told him that you were only a priest and that they should leave and they should all leave you alone. Maria said, struggling with the words. How come you want to talk to me? She asked quickly. I'm investigating the life of a woman that you once knew. She grew attentive. You mean Mrs. Stevenson? Frank nodded. That's who I mean. People around here say she's a saint. And she was, Maria said quickly. She then turned and looked back at the statue. Her long, thick hair covered her face again. Why do you think she was a saint? Frank asked. She was a good person. She was good to people. Frank saw how pretty the girl's face really was. When the wind blew the hair away from it, he could see the blue-green eyes still keen and full of youth. The face, though distorted by the slow movements of the jaw, actually looked innocent. She saved my life. I heard. She cured me. I had lupus. I was going to die. And after I touched the statue, it bled in my hands and on my face. Helen Stevenson's blood. Maria said it all with a complete honesty. Her blood, Frank had to question deeper. Who else? Maria asked. The Blessed Virgin's blood, Frank suggested. Maria looked distant. I never thought of that. 
What makes you think it was Helen's blood that cured you, he asked. She looked at him. Don't know. People said it. My mother said it. Did you know Mrs. Stevenson at all? Did you talk with her, Maria? Maria scratched her nose, lifting her hand slowly to her face. Her baby blue sweater was pulled around her wrist, held tightly by her fingers. I wanted to know her. She was a nice lady. All the kids liked her. I liked her. I wish my mother was like her. Frank edged closer to the girl. You should go see your mother. She misses you. Looking at her, the image of a frightened deer in the woods came in his mind. I can't stay long, she said. Frank put his hand out to her. Want to get up closer? Maria took his hand and walked towards the statue with him. She took slow-paced, cautious steps. Suddenly, Frank felt as if the whole world had stopped. The morning sun was bright, and though the yard was filled with people, it was as if there were only two people in the world. Do you remember Helen Stevens's room? Yes. Do you remember that morning, Maria? I remember the rain and how cold it was. I remember the wind. The open space of the schoolyard allowed gusts of wind to blow through his hair. Through his hair. What else do you remember? She raised her head. Frank couldn't help but notice the dryness of her lips and the paleness of her complexion. I walked around from there, she said, pointing at a gate aside the convent, opening to the street. Then I walked to Mrs. Stevenson's room. What were you looking for? Nothing. I just wanted to look inside. Then what happened? Thunder. Thunder crashed, and there was lightning. Frank watched closely. He could see her relive the morning in her memory. He also noticed how high she seemed, either from drugs or some self-induced euphoria. Then I felt the hand on my shoulder. I was looking at the lightning, and I felt it. A hand? Like someone touching me, she said. Frank could see her eyes still glowing. He saw that aura about her, the same he had seen when she was sitting on the bench, not her even knowing who she was. Then what did you do, he said. I turned to the Blessed Virgin. Go on. I began to pray. To pray? Yes. Whom did you pray to? I prayed to the statue, she said. To the Blessed Virgin? Yes, I prayed to the Virgin and to Mrs. Stevenson. You prayed to Mrs. Stevenson? Yes, I prayed to her that night she died and I went and went to heaven. I knew she had gone to heaven, so I prayed to her again that day. What did you pray for? I prayed that I would die. Why? I prayed to die. I prayed to die in my sleep so my father would come home. Maria remembered her father and suddenly remembered his. And he, Frank, suddenly remembered his. I prayed and that's when I saw it. That's when I saw the blood. The blood, the blood was dripping down. Abruptly the wind stopped. There was a sudden eerie silence for a schoolyard packed with people talking and praying. Frank felt the sunlight on his shoulders. Where was the blood coming from? From her eyes, Maria said. Then what did you do? I couldn't move. She closed her eyes tightly. Yes, I saw the blood drip down her face. I saw it fall down her hands. And then I heard a voice. A voice? Like she was talking to me. Who? Mrs. Stevenson. What did she say? She told me to touch it. To touch the blood. So what did you do? I put out my hands. Maria reached out her hands. And the blood fell in my hands. I felt it on my fingers, she said, rising. Her voice rising with every moment she relived. Then what happened? It fell some more. Marie was feeling the blood thrill running through her fingers. Where did it fall? On my face. And what did you do? I don't remember. Yes, you do. I tasted it. You did. It was sweet and warm. Do you remember what you were thinking, Maria? Yes. What were you thinking? Please tell me. I was thinking, yes, that I wanted my father back. Yes, I was thinking how much I missed him being with us. You must have loved him very much. I did. Maria said, round face turned to his. I loved him, she said. The hair blew, absolutely playing with her hair, her finger twisting long strands. I'm sure he knew that. She shook her head. He never knew how much I loved him. Frank put his hand on her shoulder. He squeezed it. It wasn't your fault what happened between your parents. It was. You can't say that. You can't hurt yourself for something you had nothing to do with. He would have stayed with my mother if I didn't have a kid, if she didn't have a kid. 
Who told you that? My mother did. She told me that I ruined her life. She told me that if it wasn't for me, my father would have stayed. Frank felt Maria tremble. The sky suddenly closed as gray clouds appeared. The wind grew cold. I wanted to die, father. I wanted to die. Frank felt her tears on his fingers as he patted them away from her face. He wanted to protect her from the demons of loss she was carrying with her, but he was unsure how. We all feel that way sometimes, he told her. I prayed to Mrs. Stevenson to help me. I prayed for her to help me find a way to get my father to come home to me. You thought she could help you? Yes. Then I walked to the church, I guess, because everybody was there for mass for Mrs. Stevenson. You still had the blood on your hands and face. Yes. People said your hands and face were glowing, shining. Do you remember that? I felt so weak. I felt so tired. I was scared. Do you remember being in the church? She was calling me. Who? Mrs. Stevenson calling you? I heard her. From where, Frank said, looking around the schoolyard? From the church. But she passed away. Are you sure it was her? I heard her calling me. I heard her. So I walked down the aisle to the altar, Maria told him. What was she saying? She said, it'll be all right. And you remember your hands with the blood on them? How did they feel? Like when I get high. I don't understand. It felt warm inside. That's how the blood in my hands felt. Warm. I could sleep and be at peace. You understand me, Father? Yes, I do. She saved my life. The statue, Frank said, eyeing Maria's blue jean jacket as it covered a light blue sweater. She seemed like a child. No, Mrs. Stevenson, she sent the blood from the statue to cure me of lupus. How do you know that? I just know. It was a miracle. That's why. So that's actually a scene in the movie, which is kind of cool. It's a little different. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's kind of one of the first characters that I thought of when I was writing the novel, actually. Um, because for the investigation to occur, you need a valid miracle. And, uh, you know, I told you basically what it is. But sometimes you have to wait, and that's the process. You need three miracles at that time. Now you need two. So sometimes it could be 50 years between a miracle, and that's what happens in the book. Maria's bona fide miracle. I don't want to ruin what happens to her, so I won't tell you the case. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I was just was going to say what happened. Um, the lady who plays her in the movie, I don't know if you watched that Lifetime series called Missing, the girl who could, yeah, that's, she played Maria when she was 17, 18 years old. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was really fun meeting her on set, because I said, you know, I created this character 10 years ago, and you were about eight, and now you're playing her at 18. Um, does anybody have any questions? Or? Uh, yeah. I have a technical question about sure. working screenplay. I published two books, and I wrote screenplay. Mm -hmm. I have more to come, and I live nearby. Right. Um, I'm afraid to submit my screenplay. I was registered in the WGA and the uh, Library of Congress, mm -hmm. and I have, like I said, two other ones coming up, because I know ideas cannot be copywritten, and some people do not want to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Who said ideas can't be copyrighted? Um, two lawyers. They said that the actual plot could be, but not the idea. Oh, so, um, okay. and yeah, some people want to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Titles can't be copyrighted, just in case. And the title is the main thing that I don't want people to steal. It has an ancient Greek background, and I can't believe it hasn't been done yet. So, which I'm sure you got an agent, which I didn't get yet, and is that difficult, and do you need an agent, and are you afraid somebody's going to steal, or were you afraid somebody was going to steal your book? I've had stuff stolen. So it is a good concern, um, but you should, you already did. You registered with the WGA. And the Library of Congress, yeah. And you've got a copyright. Oh, yeah. So what are you worried about now? Because people say that 
take it, twist, they could get an idea and write something similar, and then there's no way I could trace it back. But I guess there's nothing you could do. No, you have to take a chance because you can't sue. But that's why you need a copyright in WPA because if you're going to sue, your attorney's first question is going to be, do you have a copyright? Because if you do, then we're in good shape. You read in the paper all the time that the big fish steal from the little fish. And they sue and then they settle. Um, it's, it's awful. But, but I, I mean, who are you going to send it to to read? I know two or three people that actually know producers. One is producing a movie who's going to go to LA in a couple of weeks. And I, and I know somebody else who's in the movie business that I also act, who has a friend who actually reads screenplays for big companies. And his friend is one of the people that said, we won't sign a non-disclosure because what if somebody gave us something 10 years ago or gives us something similar? You know? Well, that's why they only want submissions from agents or attorneys because they know them. They know them. And they use, you know, the agents, there's just so many, they all know each other. And a lawyer. Then get a lawyer to submit it. Yeah, I just that's the best way to do it. It'll scare anybody who's thinking of stealing it because an agent or a lawyer submitted it. Otherwise, you just look like a small fry and they figure, what are you going to do? Yeah, that's a great, great idea. And well, I have another good. one that's good, but I'm like, why should I write it if I'm not going to get paid? Was that your question, though? Did I answer that? was one of them. Yeah, the other one is like the book. I didn't sell the copyrights for my books, and I want to republish, but I guess for that, I got to get an agent, too. To well, you don't sell the copyright to your book. When it's published, the official copyright is done by the publisher. But just remember, anything you write is automatically copyrighted the minute you write. So, you know, you you uh, you just have to be weird of contract. Weird. You have to be worried of contracts. Yeah, that one I'm not scared about. My idea of getting stolen. I just heard that it's very tedious to get an agent and get a big publisher. And how did you do it? People like your idea. Like, how did you get? Um, very tedious. It was tedious. It's very tedious. It's very difficult. Um, I mean, now I have agents and all that stuff, but um, the it took 10 years to get The Third Miracle published. Wow. Yeah. Um, several reasons. One, the book was not that good in the first 10 years to me. I mean, the first 100 pages, maybe half, never changed. But then when Francis Coppola read the manuscript, he bought the movie. And then when I was hired to write the screenplay, I was able to structure the book better. I cut 250 pages from the book. And um, immediately it got published. My agents at William Morris sent it out. And the first guy, editor who read it, published it. But in the 90s, late 80s, 90s, nobody was interested in Catholicism. Nobody was interested in a story about a priest. Lucky for me, the millennium came along, and it suddenly everybody was buying up anything with miracle. So, uh, but Francis loved the story because he has this love-hate relationship with the church. So. That's a whole other conversation, okay. but no, 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 it's okay. It's it's a full-time job. I mean, you have to spend right. seven days a week, and I met my agent in a restaurant when I was having dinner with a producer. Which is what I heard about Mia Bardal was a big tattoo wedding set on him. Right, and she said, you really need this woman as your agent, and she and I hit it off. Um, and then the, the interesting thing about this was Mary, my agent at that time, didn't know about my novel because she didn't represent novels. She only represented me as a playwright and a film writer. But I was at a meeting at Warner Brothers in LA, and that executive producer said to me, what are you working on? Because you go there to pitch stories. And I pitched some stories, and she wasn't that crazy about 
And she said, what are you working on at home that you really love? I said, I got this novel, it's like this big, it's called The Third Miracle, and she immediately called my agent and said, I want to read that novel. So my agent called me up, what novel? He never told me about this. I said, oh, it's something in my drawer, I can't get published, you know. And she then sent it to Alec Baldwin, Francis Coppola, and a producer named Stephen Hamm. And Alec was going to play the part. <laughs> the machinations of the sale and everything Ed Harris and wind up doing it. Um, but that was a whole process. But it's a full-time job. I mean, you need to have a good project and then you really need to have an agent to sell it or it'll never happen. So, George, anyway, everybody see the interview with George Lucas on Charlie Rose recently, maybe about five months ago in the summer. And he said, you know, artists need to do two things create something really interesting, but without any help, it'll just go by the wayside. So the second thing they need to learn is how to work the system. So you have to learn how to work the system, which is how do you get an agent? How do you get a good agent? How do you get it published? How do you get it produced? So it's, it's a full-time job. But I do notice people are really attracted to certain qualities, and one of them is talent. So that helps. But you also have to be fully involved and committed, you know. I mean, you can't say, I want to do this Monday when you need to go to a party, and at that party you're going to meet somebody that's going to help you to the next level. You know, that's, I mean, when I was, when we were here publishing poetry at the Torch and the Sequoia, all we talked about was how to get our poem. I published my first poem when I was 17, because I was constantly sending out poetry every week, reading magazines, studying, you know, setting poetry up. So, ambition is not, you cannot teach ambition. You just can't. Who else had a thing on it? Who do you read? Nobody, you know. It's, it's sad. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, going to Columbia, you know, for my master's, I read and read and read. And then, you know, I go to plays. I'm a playwright. I hardly go to any plays. Because I sit there and rewrite them. When I read a novel, I'm rewriting it. Now what I do is I study, I read what I'm really obsessed with. So I just completed a novel about Rome in 16, from 1592 to 1647, um, because I'm, I, I'm really, I, I've been really interested in Caravaggio for years. So I a screenplay that Russell Crowe was interested in doing, but it was really a play first. So the play is getting its world premiere in Chicago next year. And I got I done so much research in the time period, so that that's my reading that I got obsessed with a novel, and it was a 600-page novel, and I just finished the first draft. Um, so I usually read what I'm writing and the style of what I'm writing. So I study a lot of research. Now I'm writing a play about two famous writers in 1939 that spent a uh, weekend in Jersey with their wives, and. They only spent this one weekend together. And I'm, I did my master's essay on this poet. And I didn't know that he had spent this weekend with this other writer and his wife. So I've been thinking about this play for 25 years. And it's all been inspired by a photograph I saw in some research I was on. The picture of the two of them together on this you know, rural farm in Jersey. These two like intellectual poets who both had tragic lives. Neither one of them saw 50. So, um, well, could I tell you who they are? Yeah. Delmore Schwartz and James Agee? That's very good. How did you know that, Mark? 
I saw the same picture. You saw that photograph? And, and that photograph hit me so hard the same way. Hit me in uh, 1978. I've been thinking about that picture for, for <laughs> 15, <laughs> 20 years. Yeah. Wow, that's my Agee's, The look on Agee's face, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I uh, yeah uh, Schwartz had a farm in Jersey or something. Is that Monk's where they Monk's farm. Monk's farm right at uh, Schwartz had a farm too. That was in James Atlas's biography. That picture. That's yeah. where I saw it. Yeah. That biography of Delmo Schwartz. That's right. Yeah. That's where I did my master's essay on Columbia. Oh really? Yeah. So I just talked to a major Broadway producer about the play, and she's interested by. I just got about twenty pages. That's a great so. idea. Thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, your job as a writer is to come up with ideas, like you know, the lady was saying. It's all about ideas, part of it. And then it's the execution of the idea, and then it's dealing with the rejection that goes on forever. You know, it just doesn't end. Um, so for me, it's kind of nice that in 10 years, when this first, uh, well, 20 years ago, whatever, 85, how long ago that I started, that it's a play, it's a movie, it could be a musical. I hope when I'm an old man, I'm going to go see the musical somewhere or, or, you know, pick up the book and see the movie. I mean, I have other movies I've written, but this is exciting because it seems like to have another life every decade, which is kind of interesting. Did the movie come out yet? Oh, yeah, in yeah, 99, yeah. yeah. It's called The Third Miracle? Yeah, yeah, and Harrison Hitch. It was one of those $7 million movies that came out when all the Oscar movies came out, and it should have been nominated. If you go on websites, you'll see it made the best 10 list of so many critics, but um, they released it in 65 cities around the country and only two theaters in New York. Lincoln Center and the 13th Street Art House, which oh, I love. Wow. Yeah. And I had a private screening at the Queens um, Theater in the Park. And people showed up and said, wow, we can't wait to see it. And you know, now everybody sees it on cable. And when it's on cable, the New York Times always has a great picture of it. I think it's the same picture. And you know, they gave a great review. It got a rave in the LA Times. Um, but it's a difficult business. You know, It's really difficult. Well, in terms of if it goes to all the theaters, how much? How many people go to the first? Nah, the distributor, the Sony Classic, Sony Picture Classics picked it up at the Toronto Film Festival where we had a world premiere, and they picked up three movies that year. Ours, the one with uh, Sean Penn that Woody Allen directed, and another movie, uh, My Mother, uh, the Spanish uh, director. My Mother. Yes, and um, that won the Oscar. So they picked uh, those three movies. They picked which they they they're really publicized. And they publicize that more than our movie and the It's just one of those things. Some distributors pick up a movie just so that no one else will ever publicize it, and they never show it. I have friends who's, who are trying to soon get their movies back from Miramax. But we at least got seen. We were in movie theaters, which I was thrilled. And 65 cities around the country is still pretty good for a $7 million movie. So, but you got to remember, two or 3,000 movies are made a year. And you get to see, you get to hear about, I don't know, three or four dozen. Yeah. You said you're a professor here? I taught here in 84, 85, 86, 87, something like that. Three years somewhere. And what did you teach? Screenwriting. Up in Bent Hall in the, in the penthouse. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, really want to be a writer. So, like, but the main problem that I have is, like, since I'm just, like, starting to learn everything, I'm, like, I'm afraid to go out and just devote my entire life to writing. So, like, how did you get like money at first after like right after leaving college, or did you start writing like then? Yeah. See, I mean, the problem is you've already given yourself a reason not to do it. Oh, I picked. I picked. It's not for the money. It's I like writing, but like if I devoted my whole life to it, then I'd never be able to like. 
Literally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, I'm just going to be a teacher, and over the summer, that's what I was thinking of writing. But well, you can, I mean, you know, I have friends. I'm in some, uh, I mean, uh, Fred Gallifet's new book yeah. about writing. And Fred said to me, he teaches at Stony Brook. He said, you know, I wanted to do what you did, but I decided to, to teach, have a family. Well, me, I just wanted to write. And, you know, from the age of 17, 16, 15, whatever, to now, to me, it's like one long week or something. You know, I'm doing the same thing I did all that time. And it's constantly, you write. I mean, if you're really driven to write, you actually, I tell, I say this all the time, you don't have a choice. You wouldn't even, I never even ask a question. So how am I going to survive? I have no idea. I'm just going to write stuff and I'm going to sell it. I have no idea. It's, it's, a, it's an obsession. It's a vocation. Um, you don't even think about it. And then one day, 20 years later, you wake up and go, wow, I did a lot of stuff. I made money. And, but it's like uh, jumping out of a plane with a parachute. Because if you really worry about it, you're never going to jump out of a plane. But your question to me was, what do you do? Yeah. You write. You write as much as you can. Yeah. And then you try to find people that can publish it, produce it, represent it. Yeah. My favorite author, David Lodge, taught for 20, 25 years and wrote a book, a novel, wrote a book of criticism. Wrote a novel, wrote a book of so you could do you that could do too. It. Yeah, usually in the American, like Demo Schwartz said, the American writer or poet taught. You know, but what I like is I like doing television, I like doing film, I like doing novels, and I like plays. And when you do television, you have to be able to go to Los Angeles and live there. I lived two years ago. I lived there for a year, writing for a TV series called Threat Matrix on ABC. Nobody saw it. That's why I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> but because there's a lot of money in television. And then, you know, you, I could escape and say, uh, you know, I want to write a novel once the series gets canceled. So to me, television and film, being in the Writers Guild, I get the benefits, the health benefits, the pension plan, my employers pay. Yeah. If I, I would suggest to you is what yeah. kind of writer. Like if you want to write television or film, you if, if that's what it is, then you study every TV show, you study every movie, and you go out there. And become a TV writer, and you'll be a millionaire by the time you're like 30. You know, I didn't want, excuse me, I didn't want to write television because I thought it was yeah. really bad. You know, but yeah. Is there a story about John Diddy, and then I don't know, I remember her husband's name, but he John, was, uh, John, I think John, right? Uh, anyway, they decided they wanted done. to write films, and they went into a movie theater and watched the same movie about ten times in yeah, a row. That's how you and studied it, studied it. That's oh, right. They got it. Yeah. Well, that's what you do. You just the problem today is the movies are really made for, to me, chill, uh, you know, like <laughs> ten year old, fifteen year olds, or somebody. And so I can't enjoy really any of the movies. And cable, there are like some of the cable movies are pretty good. They're not bad. And um, theater is just so di it's so expensive to do a show that I have to I have to hang out with a lot of people, a lot of money, you know, like. I had a dinner meeting on my musical last night, and they're raising a million dollars for my musical. You know, so I have to be around those kind of. So you have to be an entrepreneur too. But if you get into television, your agents—the one place agents want to put you immediately—is in a TV series because you get a weekly check, but you get paid two weeks every two weeks. And agents love that because they're assured that they could renovate their house or whatever because they know your check is going to be coming. And then you get paid per episode. Uh, you get paid residuals. I still get residual checks. I, I wrote another movie called The Marriage Fool with Walter Matthau and Carol Burnett and John Stamos and Terry Polo. Lifetime just ran for a whole week about two weeks ago. And I get residuals when it's on TV. And when they sell it to Europe, I get residuals. I get residuals for the movie of this. 
you know. But if you have a hit series, you, you know, yeah. you never have to work again after right. so. Like a sitcom, like Superman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Friends, they made a lot of money. Right. Mm-hmm. And I have yet to watch an entire episode. <laughs> but you have to, it's good to write what you like. Yeah. You know, so if you really like a, a series, whatever's on, and you write that stuff, then you, they'll like you. And they want young writers TV all the time. In fact, my agents just sent out a thing. They're only looking to sign young writers now. So everybody with 50 is like suing. Uh, you know, because that's what they want. They think young writers will get young program watches. But the funny thing is they just showed that movies, 18-year-old man, boys are not going to the movies anymore because they're playing the video games. So now, and who's, who wants to see movies is the 50-year-old and older because they have more time and more money to spend. So the industry is really based on the commerciality of the piece. You know, but I like interesting little projects that that I find fun for me. Or important. I should say important for me. Like my, I have a new play opening in January about Machiavelli. Anybody know who he is? Yeah. You do? Yeah. Okay. He talked about taking care of your own needs. He was like a politician and sort of. Well, no. He was a philosopher. Yeah. He was. A, he wrote The Prince. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I wrote a comedy about. The end justifies the means. And uh, be aligned. Everything out of The Godfather, Mario Puzo basically just stole from Machiavelli. You know, be aligned to your friends of Fox to your enemies. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That's all Machiavelli's um, advice to uh, Giuliano de Medici and then Lorenzo de Medici. So um, I decided that when I wrote the play about six years ago, absolutely nobody knows anything about Machiavelli. But they all say, ooh, he's a Machiavellian person because he's stabbing me in the back and he has Machiavellian political moves in the office. So I studied Machiavelli and I said, God, he was like, an, he's a totally misunderstood character. So I wrote a comedy about Machiavelli and we're just casting Machiavelli up. I hope to hear tonight that we got our Machiavelli. And we open up January uh, 12th for two months limited run on uh, McDougal Street at Manhattan Theater Source. And hopefully we right. too big a venue. Hmm? Where was that? Uh, 177 McDougal Street. In it's right, village? Yeah, right across the street from Washington Square. Oh, okay. Yeah, Manhattan Theater. So it's a really cool new theater. It's been there for six years. They've done two of my plays, and I got an investor, and uh, it should be interesting. When I, it's going to be real fun in the Renaissance costume. But it is a comedy, because I figured who's going to be young Machiavelli? It sounds like a heavy philosophical play in this guy. And then my play on Caravaggio is going to open in Chicago next September. And then I have a musical that I wrote, the book too, that's the script, that's hopefully opening next year. And then Paul Savino wants to do another play in mine. So I'm working on those four plays plus my not my new novel. And I had a deal with Fox Studio to develop a new series. So I have to pitch it to the, the networks, just put the contract together. So I like to do television, film, and, and I may be teaching a class at NYU actually, Richard Wesley, I've been talking about me teaching something down there next spring because I like talking about writing. So. Yeah, well, the thing is, I like novels and television and fiction and series. I mean, there are some TV shows I like. I like. I'm enjoying watching Rome right now. You know, uh, that's it. I don't know if there's anything else. I actually, I can't watch Lost because suddenly you know everybody's pretty and it's like this isn't reality I mean I like I mean my thing is reality you know but the, it's not the point of the people obviously they're going to look good it's the story right but that's why I have a problem 
I mean, you know, I've been in a TV room where the writers sit around coming up with story ideas, and all they do is steal it from every other story idea. I remember when I, when, you know, we're all, we sit around with a blackboard, actually, and there's tiers of writers, there's seven, and we come up with ideas, and we have two months to come up with 13 episodes, and then each one of us goes off and writes one. And I was noticing that all the ideas I had seen on Law and Order, you know, <laughs> and the writers were just taking the Law and Order story ideas and just twisting them. And I would say something, but that wouldn't happen in real life. And they'd all look at me and go, that's interesting. you know, Because like John Scheinman, who wrote for X-Files, was one of our writers. And everything to him was television. He learned by living TV. He never left LA. I don't think he's ever been on a vacation anywhere. And he just lives for television. So when he saw me on the internet that I had a novel published in movies, he said, how did you do that? Well, why did you do that? You wrote plays? I go, yeah. In his mind, everything was television. So it's really interesting. It's like going to another culture. It really is entirely new culture. And I kind of like going back and forth. Some people hate it when you know they feel really uncomfortable. But I like the inter, you know, because then that way nothing really intimidates you. You know, you're never really that impressed. And you can learn from the. And the problem about television writing is it's really bad writing. It's all about the text. People say what's on their mind. When good writing is theater novels because it's all about the subtext. In other words, you wouldn't get through a day if you said what was on your mind. You just wouldn't get through a day. You know, and that's what I hate about television. It's all talking heads. They don't talk at you. They don't. And when I wrote the first thing, I remember when George Clooney was my producer on my first pilot I saw, and his producer, um, Elizabeth, uh, Pam, Pam Lane, said to me, you can't do that in the opening scene. I said, well, I'm setting it up for you know, she's just talking about what she's talking. No, you have to tell the audience everything in a teaser. I says, I don't want to tell them. The whole thing I've taught myself for years is how to show. You show, you don't tell. You show the audience, let them figure it out. You don't tell them. Well, with television, you tell because they're too tired, they're too lazy. They see in front of the TV and they're tired. So they want to just see Lost. Or people crash on an island and nobody finds them. Right? It doesn't make any sense. You know? And everybody looks like they just stepped out of GQ or. Uh, Victoria's Secret. I mean, I just looked at it. I was like, this is like, this is nothing real. I don't think I was that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you take it from Oh, I, I, I just took like one <laughs> Yeah, they're on an island, and everyone's got perfect makeup and hair, and I'm thinking, that doesn't look you real. You didn't see her hair. Oh, really? It's probably so, like, you know, I don't know, but. I think Grey's Anatomy has decent writing. Really? Well, the Times compared Grey's Anatomy to, uh, what's the, oh, the House. House? Is it called on Fox? House? Yeah, House. Yeah, the guy's name is House. Doctor. And that, that, that's really good writing. They didn't like Grey's Anatomy. I like the actress a lot, actually. I wanted to get her for a movie. I forgot her name. But um, I'm not crazy about Grey's Anatomy. And I also know the producer who produced um, Desperate Housewives, too. Because they worked on my show. Fred Manchins. It wasn't mine, actually. Do you, are you getting a book? Um, yeah, I bought it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I have to get back. I'm out there in Jam City. <laughs> okay, now I'll I'll I'll, I'll for, those who, <laughs> for those who want books, if I sign it, just sign it, it's worth more. But if I put it to you, that's okay, too. But it's worth more if it just has my signature. Okay, that's okay. Well, it's going on my shelf in the house. Well, I just sign it. Then you'll, you'll thank me when you try to sell it. Thank you very Hopefully much. Hopefully it'll be worth more. <laughs> thank you. Sure. Um, are there any other questions about it? Yes. 
I, like I was saying, I really, you don't really have a choice. You really don't. Why are you smiling? You don't believe that? No, I really don't. Oh, yeah. You don't have a choice at all. I, there was nothing I really wanted to do other than write. So I just realized that's what I'm supposed to do. You know. Um, and what happens is it takes up so much of your time that you really can't do anything else. And if I don't write for a few days or even a few, let's say, sometimes I'm tra I've done movies in Paris and Rome. I mean, if I'm not writing, I do get a little bit antsy and a little nuts, you know, because I really say I gotta, I have to write, you know. So I think that's like it's a no choice, it's a no brainer. You do it, you know. And it's hard because it takes time to get good at. It. You don't just don't wake up and. And it also is nice to have connections, so it makes life easier. So you do make a living because that is a good, you know, that's a serious problem. Yeah. But you know what? When you're 18, 19, 20, you figure it out. You know. Yes. To rephrase my question before, who did you like before you stopped reading books? Well, no, I, I really like good authors, but um, some things after years get dated. You know, um, I love Tennessee Williams. I like Streetcar Named Desire as a play. Uh, I could go on and on. I mean, my favorite movie is The Hustler with Paul Newman and uh, Robert Rosen directed. I also love The Heiress, the yeah. original movie. Um, Ralph Richardson and Olivia de Havilland. It was a it was a novel by Henry James and a play. Yep. And um, my, my daughter watches that maybe twice a week. Really, that movie? <laughs> she owns the movie. Yeah. Why does she watch it twice a week? She likes it. She likes it. Once you watch his movies, you watch his movies. It's great dialogue. I, I like movies with smart adult dialogue. The women, Laura, all those. Laura, I just was so funny. I just watched it the other day and it's dated. I couldn't watch it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I, I just started to think, oh my God, I, something happened. Something didn't work. It started to feel dated. And that's the test of time, you know, for literature, for anything, is probably 50 years. You know, like John Updike says, if something is going to be thought of as really great. I mean, you got to remember with Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet had a different ending because after Shakespeare died, nobody thought he was really a great. I think it was Spencer, everybody thought was a great playwright because he was more philosophical. And then they took Shakespeare's plays, and Romeo and Juliet was not very successful when they died, so they kept them alive. And for 50 years, Romeo and Juliet was done as a, uh, a play where they both lived until. Samuel Johnson rediscovered the play and Shakespeare and said, this is one of my great playwrights. So it's really critics, like Jack, uh, Jack Spruzan in uh, Dawn to Decadence talks about how critics basically keep writers alive before a writer speaks to the times. You know? And then Wilson brought back Fitzgerald, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens. Dickens, Dickens is a serious writer rather than a, a popular, just a popular writer. Yeah, because he was, but he was very famous right from the get-go. Yeah, so. yes, but I don't think he was taken seriously as as Wilson uh, uh, thought he should be. Yeah, and that's and, and you know Hemingway. Now it's interesting with Hemingway, who was famous from the get-go and is still thought of as a great writer. Yeah. Very few people. Yet the last twenty years of his life, he hardly ever did anything. Right. You know, but um, I'm kind of interested, like in Delmarsh Watts, who you know became schizophrenic and. I don't think he saw 50. Did you read Humboldt's Gifts? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Also Belts, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in what makes a real artist slash genius. That's why Caravaggio was always interested in me. New biography. 
Yeah, and let me tell you, when I wrote my play, there was only one book on it. In 1984, Howard Herbert Random House. And uh, then Helen Langman's book came out in 
doing that doesn't bother them. Like Wallace Stevens worked, uh, you know, worked for an insurance company his whole life and wrote poetry after work. Or uh, Louis Auchincloss was a lawyer who wrote novels, you know, when he was off. Yeah, his novels I don't like. But <laughs> Wallace Stevens is interesting because Delmore Schwartz, because I'm doing all this research now, said the only reason Wallace Stevens was allowed to sell insurance is because everybody in the office knew he was such a great poet. They didn't want to fire him. Yeah. Well, I heard the reverse. I heard that uh, no, but this isn't funny. they approached somebody and they and, and the famous line is, what, Wally, a poet? You know, I mean, they know. Yeah, I think, I think his PR people sent that out. I, I like Delmore Schwartz's. <laughs> it's better. Yeah, that the fact that they only kept him in, in, in the, in the uh, selling insurance was because he was such a great poet. Yeah. Yeah, but he, you know, he wrote Weekends, and uh, poetry's a little different. You know, you could sit at home and write. Emily Dickinson never left the house, right? So that's different. But if you want to be a playwright and you want to write a play, you got to find a producer. You got to find a director. You got to go to readings. If you want to write movies, no one's going to call you up and say, "Hey, I got this TV series. Would you like to write for it?" You know, you have to. Uh, what's the word for each job? You know, you got to politic. You got to get there. You got to be hired. Right. You know, and coming up with ideas is a full-time job too. Like that photograph only took me 25 years to. I wanted to do it 25 years ago, but I didn't know how. Yeah. So now I've actually written everything I wanted to write up to this point, and I said, I think I want to start that. Well, there's a there's a history of, of uh, like Stoppard's play about uh, Joyce and, and, and yeah. uh, different people meeting right. in, in Switzerland, that, that particular, you know, writers being juxtaposed against each other. I mean, that's there's a history of, that's interesting. Very interesting. Right, but the whole trick is to get, is get the setup in the plot. Yeah. You know, what was so wonderful about this is I saw the whole plot when I was in the library here and I read The Spiritual Detective and I said, ha, ah, you know, what a thriller. I mean, you have the setup, but if you get the setup of your story, it'll basically write itself. Like if I gave everyone in a class a setup and said, go all, all go home and write it, they would put their own imprint on it, but they would actually have an easier time to write it. Because most people just write and they forget, you need a setup. You know, you need a story. You need something to sell to the to the reader. You gotta have a story, you gotta have a setup. And that's what a story is, a setup. So most writers could write, you know, two or three drafts before they realize I don't have a story, I got a lot of good stuff, but I don't have a setup, I don't have a story. And that's the hard part. That's you know, I forgot who it was who says, you know, a lot of writers could write, but it takes a really smart writer to figure out what to write about. And I think that is the, the key for me what to write about. You know, like this novel I just finished, I wanted to write about, I've written enough about Caravaggio, but I was really obsessed with his roommate, a guy named Mario Minetti. Has everybody ever heard of him? He was a painter. No, you never hear of him. You have to go to Italy to find his paintings. But he was Caravaggio's roommate. And why did it become interesting in him? Because the reason I got interested in Caravaggio was a set designer told me I was in a Caravaggio painting. Oh, yeah. somebody looked like you was in a painting? Yeah, when I was 24. So he showed me the painting, and there I was. That was my face. You know, I'm Italian. You know, it, who knows? You know, it was just you go to Italy, and everybody looks like a relative to me when I'm there. So I became obsessed, and I wrote a, in my first book of poetry, or second book, I wrote a big poem about being in Caravaggio's painting, and then I found the Howard Hibbert book, the only book on Caravaggio, and I read his life, and I said, "This is that's a play." So I wrote a play, and just in '98, Helen Langdon said that person in that painting. It's not me, it's Mario Minetti. So then I studied Mario Minetti and found out that he was the model for all of Caravaggio's early paintings. And these two guys lived together and they drank together and they fought together and I became really interested 
in what made him go to Rome in 1592. And he wanted to be famous, just like he wants to be a writer to be famous, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's no different than me when I was 17 going to college here. I want to be famous as a writer. That's what I wanted to do. So I started to write about Mario Minetti. And the only problem was Minetti became famous in a different way than Caravaggio, not as a great painter. So, you know, that interested me. So that's why I wrote about it. And I think it's an interesting take because I've written about Caravaggio three times now. But I was really interested in, in Mario Minetti. So does anybody else have any uh, questions? Or? That was interesting that you just said when you were 17 or 18, you wanted to write to become famous? Well, I wanted to become fam a famous poet, writer. Yeah. Okay. Why? Is that interesting? No, I was just, uh, I, you know, I would thought that if you were a consumed by writing, the fame would sort of, I mean. No, but that's the interesting thing about the arts. I mean, if you're in business and you want to start a business, a businessman doesn't think about being famous. He become, thinks about making money, right? Like if I woke up every day thinking about making money, I'd be a different person. But I wake up every day thinking about what am I going to write? The money stuff comes later. But when yeah, you're yeah. young, yeah. you think about fame because you're young, you're beautiful, the world is beautiful. You know, you want fame. Caravaggio wanted fame. You know, I mean, he says it, and he doesn't write. He never wrote any letters, but you know, he hated other painters. He hated Michelangelo with a passion. You know, he thought Michelangelo destroyed art, and he was going to save it in his own way. But that's what every artist does. They come around and they say, "I'm changing everything before me," because it stinks. That's what they're supposed to do. That's their job. You know, so that's what I wanted to do with my friends here. We were all going to write. But then one got married right as soon as he graduated, and he wound up uh, working for an advertising company selling cigars for 25 years. And then he called me up, the old kids laughed, yeah, I think he has one son. And he said, uh, I want to write a novel. So I said, great, good luck. You know? And then my other friend worked for a uh, record company as a publicity. He was Billy Joel's uh, assistant or public relations guy for Columbia Records for years. But he never wrote. So, I mean, he got married, and he got divorced, you know. A lot of detours in there. But, but most of my friends that are famous writers or very successful writers, we all look at it basically the same way. How could you become more popular, more famous? Because that means more money, more freedom. See? I think I know the answer to this. You ever, did you ever read about writing? Uh, when I was going to school, nobody taught writing. I yeah. taught myself how to write plays. I told myself I'd write novels, screenplays I taught myself. I just picked it up and read it or got hired actually. My first screenwriting job, I got hired to write a rewrite screenplay. I never saw one before. So I just said, give me the pages and I figured it out. Now they have classes. And I don't know if anybody, does anybody actually pursue these careers in these classes? I'm not sure. You know? I mean, all my students, I think I've had three that actually made movies. Yeah, I'd like to write about writing, but it's I, I'd be worn out. You know, I'm too busy writing. Well, he kind of stopped writing after yeah. that accident, yeah. right? Yeah, I think that's interesting. That trauma. Half, half autobiography, half writing, but he sort of goes in and out. Well, it's interesting because the closer Caravaggio got to being killed, the more interesting and exciting his paintings became. More, more actually, more edgy and darker. And then he died. Couldn't kill him, but he 
Well, Valeria died in a swamp outside of uh, Naples. Porto Ocon. But, you know, I mean, all that stuff to me is like really fascinating. Is it destiny? Is it fate? You know, why some writers become, you know, I mean, Hemingway killed himself. Actually, you know, up until the last few years, the six Nobel Prize winners, now I think there's more in literature, all alcoholics except for one, Proles Buck. So, but I, I don't know, I, I don't, Sol Bellow was an alcoholic too, but I don't think uh, the other lady won was. And so Lewis was, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this kind of weird thing in the creative world that, uh, you know, you could horrify your parents by telling them you want to be a, a writer <laughs> or an artist. It's hard to um, not think of the audience because you have to think of the audience because you don't want to write. For me, I don't want it to be so obscure that no one's going to get it. But I'm not looking to make them happy, you know. But I am hoping that they enjoy it. Like I'm rewriting my Machiavelli play now on my director's notes, and I'm thinking I could see it at this. Not when you first write it, you don't think yeah. about it too much. But now that I'm actually going to go into production, I'm hoping within each scene I actually am there because I'm in the theater so much. I'm actually seeing the audience watching the play. And I'm going, oh, I hope they like this. Or they should like this. Or, yeah. You do think about it. It's really difficult not to. You know. But I think it's really smart to talk. When you're doing something, see, if you're doing something for an artistic reason, it's not good to think about them. But if you're thinking for commercial like reasons, like in television, you know, I, I would tell the producers, the audience ain't going to like this. Like, I don't know if anybody's watched over there. Anybody watch over there? Fox? FX? No. Okay, well, the first, it's about soldiers in Iraq. Steve Bosco's producing, and I know the other producer. And uh, I knew they lost their audience. They lost um, something like two or three million views on cable, a lot, from episode one to two. And I think the reason was they had the lead guy who you really liked in the first episode have his leg blown off. Well, you just lost your TV audience. You don't do that. It's stupid. I mean, that's a show that's supposed to be about entertainment. You know, I know it's about Iraq and it has serious implications, but it's still people watching it because they want to be with the story. But you don't do that to your lead character. So the entire first year is him trying to walk on his, you know, prosthetic leg. I mean, you just, why did you build him up so much in the first episode? You know, you don't do that. So that's the kind of thing that even the really smart guys make mistakes because they think they're being really smart and they forget their audience. But when I was writing this, I wasn't thinking of my audience at all. But I have discovered the audience. You know, yeah. I think I know who likes it. You know, because I've done enough readings on this stuff. That, and you know, I have a new novel. I'm not sure if who's going to like it. You know, and then I know there's going to be all these Machiavelli academics that are going to come down and say, you know, Lorenzo did not kill Giuliano right there. You know, he didn't die there. He died in a church. I don't. You know, it, this is not a documentary. This is a play. So I do have poetic license as long as I don't do something totally like, you know. Or if I do, at least say I'm doing it for a reason, yeah. you know. But that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I, that's why I'm, I'm liking more. Like, I have no idea what Devil Schwartz and James A.G. spoke about that weekend. And I've been talking to all my friends and writers. What, did, what do you think they talked about that weekend? You know, about writing, because that's all I did. He was 24. He was 26, and uh, A.G. was 31. Was that meeting before or after A.G. went to... Uh, Wrote Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. It was before, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that came out in yeah. 41, and that this weekend I spent again, it was 39. 38. 
39. 39. And Delmore Schwartz had already written in Dreams Dream Dream Responsibility. Responsibility. Yeah. So um, AG was also had interviewed him. So there's some things in there that I could use. You know. Plus AG's wife, that was his second wife, who was his first wife's little like adopted sister. So it's so weird. He left his first wife for this little adopted sister. And then this Delmore Schwartz's first wife was Gertrude Buckman, and she was there. So the women are really interesting characters, too. Really, because Gertrude Buckman was very smart and talented. And uh, Oma was a photographer. So it's a weird uh, group. So you got to get the characters in your head, and you got to, you know, you, and the writers are thinking all the time. You know, I would get fired from any other job anyway if I'm not talking about writing, because that's all I'm thinking about. <laughs> if I was flying a jet plane, I would go, oh, this is a scene, and, you know, and you start to think of that stuff all the time. So it's difficult to divorce yourself because a writer needs to be open and cultivating the sensibilities, as Baudelaire said, all the time. I really think that's true. I watch TV just to see how they, you know, what are they doing with the stories? Or you may see a scene and you go, that's a play. Like that photograph ticked it off, right? Yeah. Or someone telling me I'm in Caravaggio's painting. I mean, life is fun. That's what's so much fun about life, because who the heck knows what's going to happen. You know what's very well written on TV? You ever see Foil's War? Love it, yeah. That is that is extraordinary. Right. But see, you and I are in a whole different. That's not mainstream. It's made by the BBC, and nobody watches it. It's on public television. You know, if you're watching public television, you're not in the mainstream. Because it's really too slow for American audiences, isn't it? You like Kitchen. You like Michael. Oh, Kitchen. it's so clever. Though, the the yeah. plot lines. And, and, but it's it's in England and the law. But you know? it, yeah, but it, it, there was a. You know, I, I love it. I the mean, home front there, there was a war going on there too. You know? I watched it. I watched that instead of Rome when it was on. It was on Sunday nights. Wonderful. Sunday night's like the one night I want to stay home. And the other thing is I'll watch The Apprentice and Survivor. And the only reason is, and that's a whole other discussion, is that they're the only two shows that are not politically correct. Every other show is politically correct. And you know, Jacques Brisson says politically correct or correctness is the spirit of the Inquisition still running today. And I agree with that totally. Because I've been in the writers' meetings, you know. Everything has to be so you have to be so aware. But at The Apprentice, everybody acts like a creep. <laughs> but isn't that real life? <laughs> Same thing with Survivor. That's what I love it. I go, this is great. And then you got God, Donald Trump, who could care care less, you know. And you come into, you know, you come in, you, you well, this is what you did, and uh, you're fired, you know. And I'm not saying it's a great show, but I love it because it's not manipulative. It's it's a little bit realer than the other nonsense. You know, it's saved every day. There's a happy ending. It's resolved. It's horrible. It's least for me realism. That's why I love Caravaggio because he was interested in realism, and that's my interest. There are other people that do really well not being real. Like I sat next to a guy at a war dinner who did the uh, what's the rap? Uh, not the rabbit, the the mouse. The, what's the movie? The little white mouse. No, no. Yes, I sat next to him and I said. To myself, he looked like he directed Stuart Little. <laughs> and I said, I couldn't spend all this time with Stuart Little. You know, that's like a year of your life with Stuart Little. What if it was Stuart Little? Because you got to think like them. And there are writers I meet that just love comic books, you know. And now the other thing with movies, they're doing movies based on graphic novels. Aren't they comic books? Yeah, they call them graphic novels. Yeah. But they're comic books. How deep can a comic book be? Well, you got the guy that writes Mouse. Uh, what's his name? You know the Nazi thing. 
This concludes this podcast. We extend our thanks to author and alum Richard Vettieri for allowing us to share this reading with the greater community. Music for this podcast is a sample from Bee's Practice Geometry by the band Luff. If you have feedback on this podcast or would like more information on podcasting at St. John's, please contact us at eservices at stjohns.edu. Thank you.